invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel. We're looking at verses 22 through 34 and then verse 35 at the very end. We're going to look at this passage in just a moment. I, and while they're going downstairs, I just want to, to draw your attention to the very important discourse that we're entering into now in this portion of the text. From verse 22 all the way through to verse 58, it's a 71-verse chapter, so it gives us a lot to look at. And so this discourse is uh, the first of five that he has in John's Gospel, and it also introduces the first of seven I Am statements, which is, of course, a clear declaration of his deity. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's the first of six more that will come as we move through John in chapter 8 and verse 12. I am uh, the light of the world. And in verse or chapter 10, verse 9 and 11, we see that he is, or 7 and 9, he is the door. I am the door. In verse 11 and 14 of chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And then, of course, in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in chapter 14 and verse 6, we see I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in verse 15, we see that he is the true vine. And the Father is the vine dresser. So these, the, the miracles, of course, are a demonstration of his deity. These discourses are actually a declaration of his deity. And then, as we see coming up, the resurrection itself, as we are celebrating it here this morning in communion, is the validation of his deity it validates it all. What we've seen and demonstrated in the miracles that has sort of um, uh, prefaced, if you will, the discourses that we've already covered, then we see the uh, discourses themselves become his own personal, in his own words, declaration of his deity. And then they get upset. And then, of course, when the resurrection happens, we see that all validated. So these are important discourses that we're looking at. We want to give our careful attention to them. And I want to start by reminding of us an important statement that comes out of chapter 1 and verse 38. Jesus says this to all of his followers. This is something that I think is worthy of, of repeating. When John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, verse 35 of chapter 1, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples, the two disciples heard him uh, say this and they followed Jesus. That's verse 37. They followed Jesus. And I draw your attention to this, drew your attention to it when we were covering it earlier. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, one question. What was it? What are you seeking? And the reason I bring that up now is because we're finding out that a lot of his followers, we saw in verse 66 of our chapter, for instance, as we peeked ahead, that this doesn't end real well in terms of the number of conversions. It said many of his, what? Disciples turned and walked away. This is Mathetes in the Greece. This is a follower. These are those who had been following him in his ministry, listening to his teaching, claiming to be, as we would in our day, of course, Christians. And yet they turned away after he discloses his discourse. It's the words of Christ that will turn someone away. Someone who's considered a follower of Jesus Christ by virtue of their name and their church attendance and uh, some uh, uh, conversion story or other. But there really is only one question that we need to consider that he lays out for us here. Right at the start, this is when he first shows up on the scene. He says, what are you seeking? That is an extremely deep question. I want you to consider the counsel, or rather the cost of following me. It's going to cost him what? His life. And we have to be ready for it to cost our life as well. So... Yeah, that's a lot because it requires our whole life. 
given over to him. And so different people hear different things at different term, times, and they turn and they walk away. That's a question we all have to consider. So he's the same Jesus now. As Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus, the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So he's still asking that question. Why? Because he's still drawing disciples. He's still calling out to people to repent and to turn to him and to his cross to seek reconciliation for the propitiation of their sins. That hasn't stopped. Neither has this question. Consider it. Think about it, he would say. Remember in chapter 2 of John, as it ended there, very interesting. There it says, not mathetes, not disciple, but it says there were those, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, so this was right after chapter 1. He was in Jerusalem, of course, for the Passover feast. Many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. Now watch what happens. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what they were really after, regardless of what they called themselves. And he needed no one to bear witness about a man. Why? Because he himself knew what was in man. So here in John 8, verse 31, he says to the Jews believing there, those Jews were believing too, it said. So you can believe and not be saved. You understand that? Because even the demons believe. And what do they do? And rightly sh- should they tremble. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. I see that's a good bit of wisdom that those demons are showing that they would at least acknowledge who he is. I know who you are. This are being cast out. You're the son of God. They know who he is. That didn't save them. Nor does it save the Jews who were believing. It doesn't mean because you're a mafete, because you're a follower of Jesus and you attend meetings weekly or you can point to a tent meeting when you gave your life to Jesus. Uh-uh. What are you actually seeking? So that's the question before us. And I think we have to look at that question and revisit it whenever we're about to enter into one of his discourses. This one, of course, is the bread of life. That he is, he is the bread of life. Following him in the way that he intends does something transformational if we actually belong to him. It actually begins to make us like him. We follow him in this day because he's not here in bodily form through his word and by his spirit. And so following him, I, I came across a, uh, a, a great statement from a, a Scottish theologian who actually just died uh, in May. Uh, he was about, I think, 82 years old. Donald MacLeod, maybe some of you might have heard of him. If you want an excellent book on Christology. It's the person of Christ by uh, Donald McLeod. So in there, listen to what he says. Now, the words are a little interesting for us. We'll have to uh, stop and maybe unpack them. I don't know if it's due owing to his Scottishness or if there is something that is just uh, uh, maybe is hard to capture in what he says. But listen to this. It's about following Christ in the way Christ intended. He says this, Christ is not known through static contemplation. You're not going to know him just about reading about him. You'll know of him, but not in the way where you know about him, where you know him personally in terms of communion. Not in static contemplation, or and then he uses this word, cultic activity. Uh, cultus in the Latin just means worship. So it's not in worship activity It's that you get to know him. It's, it's not in just thinking about him according to the word that you read. That's not, that's his, his point is this, he goes on, we know him only as we follow him. It's the only way you can know him. 
particularly as we involve ourselves in implementing his program. That means being involved in the discipleship, the discipleship of Christ, that we're growing, that we're seeking to hear from him as hard as that is, that we're making those changes because we want to continue following him. And the person who says, no, this far and no further, he just turned his back like the others did in verse 66. He's walked away because the only way you stay with him is you hear him. And when you respond to him, you follow him. It's the only way you can know you belong to him. It's the only way that you can know him. That's it. From this, he goes on, from this standpoint, orthopraxis, which is the, which is the, praxis is the Latin word, of course, for practice, right? So we have, we talk about orthopraxy. So in this, from this standpoint, orthopraxis is more important than orthodoxy, end quote, than right doctrine. In his view, in this sense only, orthopraxis is actually more important because you can build up a whole library of knowledge you can fill your head with books. You've got blog spots. You guys are, are listening to sermons by the A-list uh, reformed preachers all day long. You can fill your head. That doesn't mean you know him. It's not borne out in a statement, however sincere that statement might be. There's another fellow who made a similar statement. His name is Sobrino in his uh, Christology at the Crossroads. He said, we gain access to him through a specific kind of practice. He uses the Latin word praxis, which the Gospels describe as following Jesus or discipleship, end quote. What have we been thinking when we've used the term discipleship? Or when we've claimed I'm a follower of Jesus. What are we leaning on for the veracity of that statement? Because your life hangs in the balance. Your eternal soul. That's a rather important question, wouldn't you say? So I've got a statement for us because I think it's that important. Right action or orthopraxy, right practice, Right? Action is crucial to our Christian faith. It's as crucial as right belief. Right belief alone won't get it done. Right belief, I believe in Jesus, so did the demons. I believe in Jesus, so did the Jews, who he had nothing to do with. So did all of those who turned away. This isn't going to be a small group. He told us that. He gave us a heads up back in the Gospels when he said, it's the many and the few. Well, I think the further we go as we understand this, the more we follow him and the more that fall away, the more we realize what he meant when he said, count the cost. He who seeks his life will lose it. On the other hand, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What an enigmatic statement. It makes sense to me. I have to completely and utterly die to myself. Doesn't that leave me dead? No. If I belong to him, I am alive in him. It's him then that is transforming my heart through the efficacy of his word and the power of his spirit. It is him. It is him. So what do you say to somebody who hears from him and just turns away? Are they followers? No, it's, it's validated in the practice. The only way that I can know that I know him is how I respond to his word. Does it mean I get it right every time? Of course not. It's not going to happen in this lifetime. It means I'm deeply grieved. I'm not going to stop until I can turn away from those things that he was faithful to show me are wrong in my life and in my heart. You shine that on, you turn away, you're with the rest of the crowd. You're with the many. You got a lot of company. So in order to fully appreciate the spread of life discourse, we first have to understand three things. I'm going to go through the text 
And then we're going to look at three things. Because this particular discourse is telling us that Jesus the Christ is our provision. He is the bread of life. That's what's meant by that statement. We need to come off of picking, uh, picturing some loaf of bread. That's symbolic. He is our ultimate, comprehensive, covering everything provision. And not just for physical food, but for everything that you long for, everything that you need to be reconciled, everything that you need to be whole, everything that you ever wanted to be content, everything that you've ever wanted for an identity so you're no longer confused, everything that you could ever want to be happy, to be holy, to be healthy in God's eyes. And the list could go on, couldn't it? That's what we're looking at. That's why I, I sensed the importance of therefore looking at, first of all, and this is going to be after the text, our provision in Christ. We're going to see, talk more about what that is from the scriptures. Secondly, we're going to look at neglecting. What happens when we neglect our provision in Christ? And that leads to number three. And this is tough. The pain, the pain that we suffer when we neglect the provision in Christ. That will, this is just a prelude. This is an entrance, entrance into this discourse. And if we're going to get the full appreciation, the intention that God has for us in, in walking slowly through his son's life and looking at him and hearing him tell us about the fact that I am Right there we should fall down. I am. I am. I am the bread of life. You are not only the bread of life, you are God, very God. You have all that I could ever ask or need. Let's look at the text. Verse 22. But before we do... Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. I thank you for the power unleashed through your spirit and these words. Oh, Lord, how desperately I need you. And how willingly would we come to you with ears ready to hear, hearts ready to receive all that you have to say to us. Even as we heard in our prayer in the call to worship, oh, Lord. It resonates through this discourse. So may we now listen carefully as we take our mind's eye back to that day following the feeding of some 20,000 people. In Christ's name, may you be glorified. Amen. Verse 22. And on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side, so this is after the feeding of 5,000 men, as it says, but it's, with the women and children, as Matthew included, would, it, would put it somewhere either just south or, or even north of 20,000 people that he fed out of nothing, out of a handful of loaves and two fish. So this is the next day. So this means that this crowd was there overnight. They stayed overnight. They watched the disciples lead by boat. You'll remember Jesus told, made them, that's the language, made them get in the boat and leave, which shows you that there was some resistance there, but they went anyway. They're out on the sea. This is the next morning. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Remember, he went up into a mountain to go pray. He's praying to the Father. And then he shows up. You remember last week, he shows up when they're being tossed by a storm and a hard wind, rowing contrary, and he comes walking on the water. And that whole exchange happens. So this is in the morning when the boat landed and the people woke up, if you will, on the other shore where he was and said there was only one boat. Um, 
Where is he? So there ends up being some boats there. There were other boats, verse 23 from Tiberias. That's to the west straight across and down south and west on the Sea of Galilee from Bethsaida, where this feeding took place. So now they are, the disciples have hopped in the boat and crossed the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee and landed in Capernaum, which is on the northwestern point shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And he, this is where he's going to do his preaching. This is where he'll preach Jesus, the discourse. So other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Notice he brings that up again. Very, very important, the mentioning that he gave thanks because this is the Father who provides these things. They're going to be confused here in a minute as we get to that portion in the text. You know, when they're saying, why, what sort of works do we need to do and so on? Listen, Moses fed us. And he said, no, Moses didn't do that. It's the Father in heaven who feeds you. Constantly having to draw our attention from this which is earthbound and the provisions we find physically here, either in physical things or other people, and draw our attention. No, this, your provision comes from the Father. So they're going to learn that as we go along in this discourse. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, so he didn't come down from his praying, they themselves got into the boat, the boats that they saw were available there, and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're seeking him, and of course, we'll find out in 26 why they're actually seeking him. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is evidence, I would say, that they, he got there in some supernatural way because there's no way he could have walked up around the northern shore as a man and already been there on, at, at Capernaum. So they know something's going on. That's why they're asking the question because they know the geography and they know how far it is. They know that if you cut the corner from Capernaum to Bethsaida and went straight across the street, oh, if you happen to be able to walk on water, that's like some seven miles as the crow flies. So it's much more than that going up and around on the shore if he were to walk. So they're just curious, like, when did you come? How, how long have you been here? How did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them. And when he starts with truly, truly, this is, a, this is a propositional truth. This is an absolute truth from deity. You should pay attention. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me not because you saw signs that indicated to you who I am as Messiah. That's not why you're following me. The other ones who said they followed him because of the signs he did, that was the show that he put on. That's why they were following him and ended up turning away. So we have little ability to understand what people's motives are. Very, very meager facility to be able to actually know what people's true motives are for why they say what they say about following Christ. He's able to do that, as I pointed out from chapter 2, 23 to 25. He's able to look into man. Man sees the outward appearance, right? First Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he's doing that. And he said, this is exactly why you're following me. You're following me because you got fed. You got fed physically. And that's not what I'm about, and you're about to find that out as the bread of life. So... I, I think it's a grace and a mercy, don't you, that we can't read people's motives? Because we might be staggered by how few people have the motive that Jesus is looking for, who are broken over their sin, crushed in spirit, crying out to a, a holy God who will judge and saying, Have mercy on me. Have mercy. And Messiah comes, they become aware, and the lights come on in blazing glory. Their hearts are regenerated. They're alive, and they can see him, and they follow him. Big difference. Perhaps if we found out how few that few number is and how many the many number is, 
we get a little discouraged? Augustine remarked at how seldom it is actually when Jesus is sought for the sake of Jesus. Think hard on that question. Why actually are you calling yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? There's just too much at stake here not to do that. Too much. Verse 27. Do not labor, Jesus says, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's free. Is that what they want? You offer free eternal life if somebody will simply confess their sin before a holy God and he will give that to them. He's done all the heavy lifting. He's simply going to give that to you. And they reject it. The only explanation for that is maybe I've been underestimating the sinfulness of sin. Maybe I've not known the depths of of my depravity. Somebody would actually walk away from that? Oh, well, I'll sign on. I mean, if it's a church that's got all that, the music and, and somebody who's just a really pizzazz preacher who gets me crying, I can come down front. Is that all I have to do? He goes on, For on him God the Father has set his seal. So stop laboring for what is, after all, temporary, a temporary satisfaction. You're looking to things in this life, in this world, that are temporary. They're not going to stand up for you when judgment comes, when you stand before a holy God. What are you trusting in? What are you leaning on in that day? So these things that they're depending on are for their physical body, a body that's perishing. When, in fact, their eternal soul is emaciated and wasting away. And he's offering free food for that. No, we we want the, I'm hungry. I, I I want the sandwich. No, we came for the, for the music. This is an awesome place to come for the music and it makes me feel good when I leave. Yeah, they tell me all the things that I like hearing about not only Jesus, but man, about myself. You know how much he loves me and, you know, yeah, I get it. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, will give to you. And already there will be people that are offended by this 15-minute introduction into this sermon. Well, just wait, I'm not done yet. Here's what J.C. Ryle said about this. How are we to labor? Okay, somebody's going to answer that for us, somebody that I have a lot of respect for. There is but one answer, he writes. We must read our Bible like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a will that you might stand gain. We must fight daily against sin, the world, the devil, like those who fight for liberty and must must conquer or be slaves. These are the ways we must walk in if we would find Christ and be found in Him. This is laboring, he writes. This is the secret of getting on about your souls, end quote. Nothing less. You can't decide that 
all of that is just not, I didn't sign on for all that. I'm not, I'm not really that interested. Then you're not that interested in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no third category. He leaves us walking away at that point. There isn't a sadder moment in Scripture than verse 66. Verse 28. Then when they said to him, what must... How do you like this question? Oh, natural-born legalists, aren't we? We, we want to find a way to get this done ourselves. I'm doing all the doing. Why am I not getting the rewards? I've touted all of my virtues and the things that I've done. What must I do? What happened to the rich young ruler when he asked that question? I've, I've kept the word of God. I've kept the commandments of God from day one on. All right. Then sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And they followed him. He didn't. He wrote off. And in Mark's account of that, he said that Jesus loved him. <laughs> oh, how he grieves those who bear his name and yet do not what he says. Do not follow him through his word. What must we do to be doing the works of God? There is no greater statement or concise statement of Catholic uh, theology or soteriology than that one. Ex opera operato. Out of the working of my works, I get grace, right? And, and sometimes Christians, genuine Christians, get confused because they think, well, well, we're called to make an effort and so on. Yeah, you're called to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, you're called to a mortification, as the Reformers and Puritans called it. You're called to put your flesh to death. That's some doing. Yeah, well, who's getting that done? Who gave you the grace and the power to be able to do that? You? Me? <laughs> I can tell you what I have the power to do apart from Christ. To destroy my life. I was pretty efficient at it, actually. Until he found me. He's given me the grace that he might grant repentance in my life. What kind of love is that? for a dirtbag like me. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? You want to do the works of God. That's what you're trying to do. These people that walk away. Virtue signaling, people pleasing, approbation, lust. You're looking for your solace from your friends or your family or your job. You've poured your heart into them. And where will they be? Where will that job be? Where will that neighbor, that friend be when we stand before him? Christ and him alone or nothing. Nothing to the cross I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Our good works are what, according to Isaiah? Filthy rags. All the merit that Paul compiled for himself as a Pharisee. He threw him on a dung heap. Scubalon in the Greek. It's nothing but waste. It's a stench in the Lord's nostrils. That's what it is. What must we be doing? This is automatic. This is instinctive for us. Just we are out of the womb legalists. They want to take their works and their goodness to get them to heaven. Did I miss any of that? That's the question of the rich young ruler, isn't it? So what did I miss? 
I did all this other stuff better than anybody else I know. What else did I miss? That's what they're asking. What do I need to do? The things that you do in his name, in service to him, need to be exclusively for him, or you're going to be disappointed. You do that for the approbation of man, for man's pleasure, man's pleasing, man's attaboys, patting on the back. Look what you're doing. And you know how you know that you've crossed that line into the wrong motive for doing those things? If you're irritated because nobody's noticed you serving in this capacity, you're irritated or you're aggravated because nobody else helps you to do that thing. Wrong motive, my friends. Wrong motive. We should be so captivated by him, so enamored, so in love, so adoring of him. I can't wait for him to show me some way, some way with all of the lack of talent and lack of ability I have, that he might be able to use me for one thing. Just let me know. I'm not going to blast it out of a megaphone. I'm going to go and I want to do it. And I hope nobody's there. Or you've had your reward. We keep dropping our gaze. We keep dropping our motives. We keep looking to people and places and things on this earth for our provision, for our solace, our peace, our contentment. And when you stand before him, if that's you or me, and when we stand before him, if that's what we've leaned on, with the time he's given us on this earth, which is a vapor, Imagine the expression on his face as he looks at you. Think about that. Think about that. Jesus, so gracious, so patient, so kind, so enduring with people like me. Verse 29, Jesus answers them. This is the work of who? This is the work of God. This is the work of God. And here's, here's what you're to do. You're to what? What does it say? Believe in him. Who, that, who God had sent. So Jesus corrects the false legalistic assumptions they had. Jesus exposes the things that they've been depending on, the, the, the things that they've been looking to for their contentment, their peace, their happiness, their wholeness, their identity. Exposed just like that. The only thing in Scripture, in all the Gospels, that it says that Jesus marveled at is from Mark's Gospel, and it says he marveled at their unbelief. Be saddened by that. He's the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, standing there and looking at their hearts. And he's marveling at their unbelief. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? I mean, how long would you or I have endured this? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Oh, I just fed 5,000 people and you were there. What work do you perform? Come on, let's see it. We've got a lot of people that aren't coming anymore because these aren't as impressive. These miracles aren't as impressive. You know what Moses did? He's going to tell him. Here we go. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You pulled it out of a nasty basket. Come on. 20K people? How about 100 times that? That's what Moses did. Some 2 million plus people, transient nation of Israel. You, one day, one meal. With all due respect. Fed us for 40 years. Come on. Start performing. What an offense. What blasphemy. Oh, and he's about to reveal who he is. They're still not getting it. Faith 
This belief is not a work that he's calling them to here. You must believe. Because you're given your faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8, it is by grace that you are saved through faith and that, what? Not of yourselves, not of works. It is a gift of God or we would boast. You've been given all these things. That's what he just said, right? He came to give this to us. I came to give you all of it. And you would not. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I, said to, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't do that. See, that's how much they venerated Moses. That's why Stephen got you know, stoned to death because they thought that he was dissing Moses. He's disrespecting Moses. Oh, how easy it is to make an idol out of a human being. Actually, that's innately what we prefer to do. We want to hang the majority of our affections on another person. That's doing things that we approve of. We enjoy being around them. But that's not going to get you to heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Oh, there's a distinction there. There's the true bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he. Masculine pronoun, this is a person. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to, are you ready for this? Not just two million wandering in the wilderness, to the world himself, the bread. Wow. The manna from heaven fed the physical body temporarily. The bread of life gives life, grants life eternally. Big difference. And this offered to the entire world. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Does that remind you of anybody? Let me, let me read something to you. You'll know immediately when I start reading. See if it doesn't sound similar to this. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to this to draw water. Same thing. Yeah, man, that's even better than us having to follow you around. Like, I got to get back to work. Why don't you just make this bread happen? Cool. Saying that to the bread of life, the Son of God, Jesus Christ who will be shortly giving his life so that you might partake of his body. As a matter of fact, remember what he told Peter? John 13, if you don't, if you don't partake of me, you have no part in me. Amazing. Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, here it is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Another reminder to chapter 4 on the Samaritan woman. You'll never be thirsty again. Obviously, he's not talking about physical things, but we have trouble coming up off of that in our minds. They were totally thinking, like the woman at the well, that this is, we're talking about physical stuff. So I'll have bread. From now on, I hear there's a woman in Samaria, and she's going to get water from now on. We're good. 
That was a main staple in the Jewish diet. That's why this is extremely significant. This meant life. This meant sustenance. Okay, very quickly. First, our provision in Christ. First thing I thought of when I was thinking about, okay, provision from Jesus Christ is the bread of life. You know what? And this idea that he gives us, even in our text, that you're going to need this daily. I'll recite it and you tell me if you recall it. Give us this day our daily bread. We need this daily. That's what it's telling me. Is that what it's telling you? Each day I'm going to need this. And each day he promises me that I will have this every moment of every day. The ability to access and acquire peace, internal peace, no matter what's going on in my life, peace, complete and perfect contentment in the middle of a storm, if I know, if I have Jesus in the boat, if you will, happiness, joy, an effulgence of joy coming from him. But this takes, this takes a daily partaking of Jesus Christ. So to the ancient Jew, it was not only a symbol of their, the, the, the main staple of their diet, as I said, but it's also symbolic of God's provision, symbolically. So when it talks about bread in the Old Testament... They're talking about provision that comes from God exclusively, only. Got some examples of this. Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Or Proverbs 30, verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. He knows what we have need of even before we discover it ourselves. Psalm 34, verse 10. This is fascinating. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You will lack nothing in terms of everything that you could ever want or desire. The young lions will lack first. The young lions, the king of the jungle, they shouldn't have a problem getting some food. When David was in the, the caves, he was at the time when he wrote this psalm, there were, there were lions around at the time. That's how he's, why he's using this particular analogy. They'll suffer want and hungry. They will die of hunger. But those who seek the Lord will never lack any good thing. So you can believe in Christ and you can tr be a true believer, but you can have areas of unbelief at times, can't you? Of course you can. So, do, so can I. How so? Well, there's times where I'm not accessing something that God fully declared and made available to me, and instead I spin. Instead I look to resolve things myself. Instead I, I, I'm looking to people or circumstances to change God's hand of providence in my life. I will bring about my happiness. I will achieve my contentment because I've decided what that looks like. You suffer from unbelief. You don't believe. Either that or if you believe that he could give you all those things, then you're just rejecting him. It's a trust issue. So this verse has two things in it. It has humans struggling for provisions that fail. And it also has humans seeking the Lord's provision that satisfies. That's the contrast. You're spinning, toiling, fighting, struggling, wrestling, agonizing. Is on you. Is on me. He's given you everything that you need. The bottom line is we don't want to repent of that. The bottom line is we want to run our own life. We're, we're, we're that egocentric, that arrogant. 
I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this right. And if you're involved and you're doing something that's aggravating my life, I will show you how wrong you are before I'll be broken over the situation and throw myself at the mercy of Jesus Christ and beg for him for relief. We exhaust ourselves in this. One writer said, the men whose lives are one long fight to appropriate to themselves more and more of outward good are living a kind of life that is more suitable for beasts than men. End quote. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. You're acting more like an animal. Survival of the fittest. You're, you're, you're making Darwin's point at that, at that if that's what you're, how you're, what you're doing. It's the vain struggle of brute beasts that exhaust themselves to eke out their own survival, their own bread. They fight. Fighting really for us, for things that the Lord freely gives. But we're that stubborn. We're that prideful. And we need to own that. We weary ourselves needlessly, striving after the things that the Lord can easily, readily fulfill. But we don't want to do it His way. That's what it must be. That's why I'm resisting this. But my life's getting harder and harder. Why can't this work out? Logically, rationally, biblically. This, this just isn't right. And he lets us spin and toil and wear ourselves down like the group of men and boys outside the door of Lot's house when the angels were there and they were there to know them. He struck them blind and they continued to weary themselves to find the door. Jeremiah makes the same point. Men weary themselves in their sin instead of turning to the cross of Jesus Christ and being relieved. No, that would take humility. That would take brokenness. That would be saying, and this is what's hard for us. It was hard for the Fonzie. I was wrong. Right? I was wrong. I, I'm, I'm out of gas now. That's right. He puts you there. He lets you run yourself dry. Because now he can do something with you. Because when you are, who's with me? When, Weak than he is. There you go. There you go. I call it whacking me on the kneecaps with his nightstick. That's what he had to do with me. Whack, whack, whack. It hurt. It was painful. I'm struggling. I'm staggering. What is a man bloodied but unbowed? I'll get this done. I'll make this happen. It's the right thing after all. This should be happening for me right now. Why isn't it? Bloodied but unbowed. That's us. That was me anyway. What do I mean was? She's nodding up here, so you, just so you know. We seek Him through desire, through communion, and through obedience. That's how you seek Him. Through desire, your heart longs for Him through communion, I'm going to be just like that statement I read earlier. I'm going to be digging deep into this word because I need to hear from him every day. It's a daily bread Amen. and obedience. I come up off of that and I do what he says as he checks my heart. I yield myself to him. No sincere effort to seek God for the things that you need ever ends in vain. Never. It never does. The truth is, we have as much of God's provision as we seek. Think about it. Some things we just don't intend to seek. If we 
lack any good thing then, in other words, it's because you haven't sought God for it. You're still doing it your way. McLaren said this, For God is everything to us, and everything else is nothing. And it is the presence of God in anything that makes it truly able to satisfy our desires. Human love, sweet and precious, dearest and best of all earthly possessions as it is, fails to fill a heart unless the love grasps God as well as the beloved creature. And so with regard to all other things, and so with regard to all other things, whatever is my need, the one God will supply it, end quote. And I'd best look to him for it, or you will run out of those resources because they're all temporary. They're all temporary. They're wonderful to enjoy in their proper perspective. If this starts going like this, you're in for trouble if you belong to him. Psalm 73, 25 to 26, I think this says it best. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that what we say when we really are needy? We really need something. We need something fulfilled. We need something to help us. We're desperate. Is that what we're saying? Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Everything else will fail. You are my portion. We heard that in the reading of Psalm 16. The Lord is my portion. He's my cup. He's everything. Or he better be. Second, neglecting our provisions in Christ. Second, or 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12. I'll finish this, this part, and we're going to have to stop for communion, but just follow along. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to look at verse 1 to 12. So the Israelites abused their newfound freedom from Egypt is the setup here. But there's a reason this story is in the New Testament because Paul wants us to be able to benefit from the lessons learned here. They failed to believe or trust in God. They failed to obey him. You know the story. And therefore failing to love God in spite of God's commitment to guide them his commitment to protect them, his commitment to provide for them. He is Jehovah Jireh, is he not? The God who will provide, the Lord will provide. Verse 1, I want to, you to know, brothers, this is important to Paul, so it's important to all of us, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's who they got it from. They got their food and their drink from Christ himself. A pre-incarnate role of Jesus Christ. They had the spiritual rock providing them all that they needed. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Yet we trifle with those very things. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, what I want to finish with is off this list, because these are categories. There's a huge drop-down window under each one of these that he's given us. If you've seen four in the text I just read, then you're right on track. I've got them listed for you here. Here's four major areas of failures, a failure to rely on or be satisfied with the provision of Jesus Christ. Here's, this is our temptation. First, 
from verse 7, idolatry. This is a failure to die to yourself, to worship God supremely, and love others consistently. Our hearts, Owen's right, our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture them. We're natural-born idolaters looking to all of creation to wrap our hearts around it. Second, sexual immorality from verse 8, that's a failure to mortify the flesh and engage in self-control. I don't think more needs to be said about that. I have to have this. Oh, really? Really? For the first one, for the idolatry, I have to have so-and-so. I don't know what I would do without them. I don't know what I would do without this job. I don't know what to do with these. And then he takes them away. What happens to our hearts? The third failure to rely on and be satisfied with Christ as our all-sufficient provision is they uh, testing Christ from verse 9. That's a failure to believe in the goodness of God's sovereign plan. We, try, we buck against providence, don't we? I don't like the way things are going. I'm going to change it. You're walking against the wheel. Like he asked Paul in the road to Damascus, you're kicking against the goads, sharpened sticks that poke cattle to get it moving. You're kicking against that. How does it feel? For grumbling. Because of all of these things, they were grumbling. Verse 10. That's a failure to be content with what you have providentially in Christ. You mean the suffering I'm going through? No good purpose in that, I guess. Where's your Bible? Do you say you believe? This... This doctrine that you hold so high, God is sovereign. I love hearing reformers say that. Oh, God is sovereign. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And then they come in to talk to you in private because their life is falling down all around them. As though something strange, as First Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12, don't think something strange. When these trials come, don't, think, don't act as though something strange is happening to you. God's at work here. No, no, I'm going to grumble. I'm going to complain. Why? Because I've been trying to get this done and I'm doing it right. I'm doing the right thing here. Really. Verse 11. We need to wrap up. Verse 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, because he will continue to knock on your kneecaps because he loves you enough to do that. But we make our lives hard. He doesn't. He doesn't. We let these things happen in our lives as they did. And yet here stands Jesus next to his blood-stained cross with all of the provision you could ever want or need. Anything, everything you could ever want or need you find in him. He's bidding us simply to come, isn't he? You just need to come. You just need to submit yourself. But as it turns out, that's a tall order because that takes a bone-crushing death blow to my pride. Yeah, I'm not going to take you and me as a shared God position kind of a deal. You have to die. I did. That's what he could say. That's what we're here to commemorate. I did. I loved you. I still do. The offer is still there. Will you turn away? Just like he said to his disciples, so sad. Will you go away too? Where are we going to go? Peter said, you're, you're, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. Right answer. 
We don't know why he said that. Did he say that because if there was another way to go, they'd go there? Because it's just too hard in another place when they said, this is just, these things are too hard. Who can endure this? Yeah. Count the cost. Examine yourself, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Unless you fail the test. It requires everything, which is full submission to the appointments of God in your life. No grumbling. No idolatry. Turning to things for your rest, for your peace. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You've been fighting to find rest for your bodies. I'm sad. I've been up since two. I'm looking for a little rest for my body as well. But we're about to have a really good meal here. And I love being with y'all. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. Repent of the things that you've wrapped your heart around here. Nobody wants that burden anyway. We, we put that burden, we tend to put that burden on our spouses or on our children or on our parents. And then they fail us. And what happened? You knew your heart was in the wrong place because you spiraled out in some kind of a direction in depths of sadness and despair or in anger and bitterness and aggravation. Repent of that now. Find the peace that there is in Christ and Him alone. He is the bread of life. He has everything you could ever need and want if you would simply come. What will it take for us to come? to lay down our pride, to mortify our flesh, and to go to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I've enough, I've had enough. You're all I want, all I ever need. I have no use for this place or its entertainments or its recreations. I want Christ and him crucified. I want to be forgiven. I want to be free and set free of the burden of the sin that bears down on me. I want to be free from the circumstances so easily aggravate and irritate. Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ. Come to me. Lift it off of me. Take me. I give you all of me, not part. Take all. Is that you? It better be. Because a lot is at stake. Let's pray. Father, help us. We're weak. But you are strong. You allow us to make ourselves weak. We are responsible for our own pathetic condition. But then you show up and you are strong. Be glorified, O Lord before we would take of these elements the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ symbolically, that we would consume this bread of life, that we would drink the cup of his blood, which would say we willingly lose our life for his sake, that we might find it. And in so doing, may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray.